This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlitt. And I'm Zach Meir. On this week's show, Nudge Theory. Bronze medal winners tend to be happier than silver medal winners. Keith Hatter, CEO, K2 Performance Consultants. You'll hear a lot of it in the Paralympics in Rio, where athletes and coaches are talking about the performance that is going in and not simply obsessing about the result. We're joined by Kate Glazebrook of the Behavioural Insights team. So iteration is crucial to, to finally understanding the best ways of getting people to live more productively. Welcome to City AM Unregulated. Hello and welcome to City AM Unregulated. This week we're nudging our way into success. And we're asking what we can learn from Paralympians and Olympians alike as Rio gets back into full swing. With Keith Hatter, CEO of Planet K2, the performance enhancing company that works with Team GB's athletes. We're also joined by Kate Glazebrook from the Behavioural Insights team, aka the Nudge Unit. It used to be a government department but is now run as a global company. You guys basically came up with the nudge theory, right? I'm not sure we could claim to have come up with nudge theory, but some of our fantastic academic collaborators did. Um, uh, they wrote a book called Nudge uh, about 10 years ago now, and it's sort of taken off from there. I think actually the word nudge was an unexpected addition to the, the title of the book, but it's now become a commonplace term that we all use to capture behaviour change and, and the ways in which we use different tools of both government and private sector organisations to help people to make healthier choices for themselves. Well, what's the difference between um, nudge theory and the theory of evolution? Because they seem to be the same. Slow, <laughs> gradual changes, That's tiny true. incremental changes. That's so basically you're studying stuff from uh, Charles Darwin, I believe. Yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to claim connection right, right the way back to Charles Darwin. I think the small difference that might be there is that sometimes evolution can lead you, lead you sometimes astray. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about ways in which bias might come in implicitly in the way that we see the world and reasons why we might use different types of tools to help us make better decisions. So if you've actually improved on the theory of evolution, <laughs> or you've improved on evolution because you only make positive changes. We aim to do that. Um, one, one thing we do share in common with, with evolution, I guess, is testing and trialling the whole way along the, along the path. So iteration is crucial to, to finally understanding the best ways of getting people to live more productively. Keith, I mean, it's, it's also known as a theory of marginal gains and has been used a lot in sport. Can you, can you kind of describe what the theory of marginal gains is and how it is used as, by athletes? Yeah, and, and I think one of the really important things before we get into marginal gains is that marginal gains tends to have an impact when you're already brilliant at the basics. So that fundamental piece is really important and often gets forgotten. So there's a lot of talk about marginal gains when individuals or teams or organisations are not already brilliant at the basics. Does that mean it's, it's, it tends to be the icing on the cake in, in plain yeah, existing... Absolutely. System. So there are some basics to any role where you, you've actually, you know, you, you've got to have those in place. At that point, marginal gains has its, has its place and marginal gains is kind of what it, what it sounds like. So if you're looking for a 10% improvement in performance, then if you can find 10 lots of single percentage points, then... They're probably easier to find once you've got to the point where you have done all the basic stuff that works because then finding single areas where you're going to get a 10 percentage point gain is going to be a lot trickier because you've already you know, got towards the, uh, the end point of, of, of big gains. Um, so there's this constant search for the tiny little things that will make a difference. Does that mean that the ordinary person in the street, I'm there with my uh, running 
you know, five miles in 50 minutes, I should just forget about trying to improve. No, absolutely not. I don't think it's about forgetting uh, trying to, to improve. I think there are a couple of things. I think, first of all, it's about making sure that the, the, the fundamentals are, uh, uh, are in place. Um, and then, then you can get to a point where you can start to seek out specific areas to get better. Um, but you get the basics in place first. So if you want to go for a 5K run, um, you might uh, think about, well, marginal gains might be, I'm going to buy a pair of trainers that are three grams lighter. Well, if you can't run 4K at that point, the extra money you're going to spend on those marginal gains is probably not as effective as going out and running a little more. So, so there, it, it's, it's a tweaking theory, really. It's a, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a theory about getting out the extra small things that will make a difference. You've got to bear in mind that in the world, particularly of elite sport, the margins for error are tiny. You know, you're talking about hundredths of a second, so it really, really matters. In the world of work, there are some arenas where those margins for error are, 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 are tiny, but our experience is that while talking about marginal gains gets people very excited, their performance would generally be improved um, by making sure that the basics that they need in place are superb before they start thinking about marginal gains. Staying with you for a minute, Keith, you've worked with some of the Team GB Paralympians. Tell us a little bit about what you've, how you've kind of improved their performance through this. Not really. Uh, from our point of view as an organisation, they are performers and they are athletes, as are the athletes in, in, in the Olympics. So I don't think, while they have, while there'll be some uh, specifics that might be slightly different, the essence is the same, which is a, a focus on performance and not solely results. And you'll see, you've heard a lot of that in Rio, you'll hear a lot of it in the Paralympics in Rio, where athletes and coaches are talking about the performance that is going in and not simply obsessing about the result. And we see a massive difference of that in the world of work, where there is almost a singular obsession with results and not very much talk about the performance, i.e. the inputs that go in to maximise your chances of delivering the result. So that's a bit like when Greg Rutherford sobbed like a little girl because he only got a bronze. That was definitely a focus on results. Yeah, well, I think um, Kate Singh has done some work on uh, the, the kind of relative happiness of golden and, and, and silver medal winners. I remember seeing that. Uh, well, just I, I think the, the research is relatively well established that typically bronze medal winners tend to be happier than silver medal winners because bronze medal winners think, I got a medal. Silver medal winners think, maybe could have got gold. That's interesting. Um, so, it's like being a middle child, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I don't know because I'm, I'm just, I'm the youngest of two, but possibly, yeah. Okay, um, um, the government's nudge unit was set up in the kind of spirit of experimentation back in 2010. What are the, the big things that it's done since then? Well, since 2010, we've, we've kind of, we started pretty small. We started in tax. We, we were looking at ways of helping the government run a more efficient and effective tax system. And from there, we've kind of built out and we now work with pretty much every area of the UK government. And we've built out into working with the, the Australian and the United States governments, as well as now just opened an office in Singapore. And I think 
probably three areas I, I would highlight. The first is a continuing focus on tax and efficiency. It sounds like a pretty boring area of government policy, but it's critical. In a world of austerity, we need all the pounds that we can get to make, make sure we can run government services effectively. How did you make people do that? So we changed a lot of the ways in which government communicates with people. So telling people some basic facts, like nine out of 10 people pay their tax on time, actually gets people who haven't paid their tax on time to pay. Mad. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? But it, it's actually hugely effective in this sort of social norming and, and sort of debunking the norm that actually very few people pay their tax on time is a really effective tool that we've now used in multiple countries across the world to very, very similar results. So I think a continuing focus on efficient tax systems is one of them. We've also zeroed in on do men and women respond differently to different types of tax letters and people with very large debts versus very small debts. Um, and we found some interesting results there. I think one of the, the growing areas for the team is also in health. And we were you know, thinking a lot about performance and talking about health behaviours. Changing health behaviour is in notoriously incredibly difficult. We're very fixed in our patterns, we're very fixed in our habits, what we eat, how much we exercise, whether we walk to work. Um, so we've worked with a lot of different types of organisations across the government and in, in the private sector as well on ways of, of helping um, doctors to interact more effectively with their patients, so thinking about what they prescribe and whether they may be over-prescribing certain types of um, antibiotics, for example, um, which we see as having a huge impact on reducing antimicrobial resistance, which is a huge issue in the healthcare system. But also down to really, really basic and specific things, like if you change a form in the way that um, a doctor in a hospital fills in, whether it's milligrams or another type of unit, you can massively reduce medical errors, which is hugely important in a world where we don't want to be over-prescribing the wrong kinds of um, pharmaceuticals, but we also want to be making sure that patients receive the right kinds of amounts. Um, when you're a busy doctor running around the, the ward, sometimes it's easy to write things in a scrawl and it's difficult for other people to interpret them. And they're notoriously good at scrawls. Exactly. <laughs> so what change do you make to that form? What so actually what we did is we just, instead of having to write down the unit that you have to do, you tick a box. Seems like a very, very basic, um, basic thing, but actually making government services more user-friendly is actually a huge part of what we do in, in the Nudge unit. So thinking about right down to the specifics of who interacts with whom and in what way, and is that as effective and efficient as it could be? And oftentimes there's opportunities to use small changes that have big impacts. How did you come across what the right things are? Is it just trial and error? I mean, how does that work? So we, we do two things. We, we run a lot of trials, or what we call randomised control trials, which have been used for decades in the medical sciences research. Um, and we use that in policy settings. So we say, does this policy work more effectively than that policy? And we rigorously evaluate whether or not the outcomes differ. But a large part of what we do is what we call explore. We get out there and we actually experience government services firsthand. And that's science. <laughs> yeah, so we, we apply to become teachers to better understand whether or not there are why ways. You, yeah, but why don't you just ask the users? I mean, everybody has uh, an opinion on, uh, you know, filling out a tax form or going to a doctor's surgery and the, the experience there or hospitals. Um, everybody knows, I mean, really, but it's just if you haven't worked in that area or you don't know about that area, then you, you've got to do all these trials and everything else. But most of us, you could, you could ask 10 people who've been to a hospital how was your experience? And that would be it. I mean, that you would, you would get all the information. But in the old days, nobody, nobody was ever listened to. That information was never gathered, was it? Right. And that, that, that opens up a really interesting, interesting kind of 
uh, unexpected benefit of, of working in this area and, and prioritising the user experience is actually we've been able to uncover all these fantastic ideas that people on the coalface have about ways of improving the services they deliver, but they don't have, they're not empowered to do so. The system's not set up for them to do that. So we get out there and we speak to them. We say, do you do things slightly differently? Do you find that this is more effective? Why don't we go out and help you to prove scientifically that the way you're doing things is more effective than the way that the status quo has written it down? And that helps them to kind of bring that to light. The other piece, though, is that we use behavioural science in, in what we do. So we study neuroscience, experimental economics and, um, and behavioural economics to find new ways of, of approaching problems that maybe no one has, has contemplated before. The 9 out of 10 people pay their tax on time was not something we learnt um, from speaking to people. They, they believed that the number was quite different than that, so it would never have occurred to them to use that as a debunking method. But we, we drew that out of the academic research and thought this might have a place in policy. Keith, have you seen similarly kind of microscopic changes can have similar effects? Some of the clearest evidence would indicate that when people feel connected and related to other people doing the same thing in a similar sort of enterprise, they are more motivated to do the thing for themselves. It's like being, so, with, the, being with the gang. Um, yeah, I, 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 I guess so. I mean, it's, it, it's part of, you know, one of, the, one of the basic human drivers for motivation is feeling connected to something slightly bigger than oneself. And if that's to a group of people doing something similar, whether it's choice of cat food or whether it's paying tax on time, um, that makes absolute sense in terms of what we know from, from, um, uh, from the research. I think the, the small behavioural changes um, can be a really useful starting point. But in our world, we're looking a lot for long-term sustained behavioural change. Um, and those, um, those initial moments when somebody tries and tests something out is really important because that might change their view of their particular world that they've got a choice in. Do you have examples of those? Yeah, so um, look, just some really, really simple. There's somebody we work with who is a senior exec in the world of insurance. Um, I was, um, he drew the short straw, so I was working with him for a period of time. Um, technically very capable. Um, he and both the organisation for, for, for which he was working were concerned that he was struggling in terms of the pressure of his role um, and his performance was, was dipping a little. Um, so we did two. We, we, we did a number of things. Two of the really simple things that that, that we did was um, uh, he would get off the tube one stop earlier on the way to work and spend ten minutes walking to the office, and on the way home he would walk ten minutes and get on the same tube stop. That allowed him to centre himself. And... Well, it allowed him to do a number of things. You know, we, we're built to move as human beings. And most of our work now is so sedentary, um, but physiologically we're built to move. Lots of good things happen when we move. The number of people that we work with that say, oh, you know, I was struggling with a problem and I went out for a walk, or I had a little run and I came back and I just seemed to be able to sort it out. And they, we know from, from, um, from the research now that there are various neurotransmitters that get released and enhanced when there's physical activity. And, and some of the work we're doing in schools, we know getting kids up and moving during the course of a lesson is helping them learn. So he did that, and stunningly, he decided that he travelled a lot, and uh, he would rely on whoever was supplying the petrol stations to supply him with his food during the course of the day. So, 
um, he was at the behest of whatever they happened to have. And generally, because he didn't eat breakfast, he would be starving hungry. So when you're starving hungry, you tend not to make the healthiest choice in the world, right? So when he was on the road, he took his food with him. So he was in control of what he took when he was in the car. Tiny, tiny little things. He didn't do it every day to start with because generally, you know, experience, people don't do it every day. He did it once or twice and then he kind of fell off the wagon a bit. And, but it was that constant checking in and then coming back in and saying, okay, I strung two days together. Let's see if I can string three days together next time. And so it got to the point where he had new habits and if you asked him now, he would tell you that he would attribute the fact that he is thriving in his role, not just to those two things, but to that whole idea of testing something out, seeing if it works for me, accepting that I won't be brilliant at it from day one, but I will keep making sure that I go back and, and testing it out so that I can decide once I've tested it out whether I add it to my recipe or whether I've tested it out and I know it doesn't work for me, so I'm not going to use it anymore. The, the, the issue here is that we are creatures of habit. We, ha we love our routines. We Absolutely. love to you know, get the 11 minute past eight train and we yeah. like to have the same breakfast. And yeah. It's very difficult to get out of that pattern, especially the older we get, the more we get fixed in, in everything we do. Uh, that's absolutely right. Behavioural change, sustained behavioural change, is one of the hardest things to... Uh, um, like to change to, going to on happen. a diet, I mean, or, or having a, going from being 20 stone to being 10. Uh, absolutely it is, and there are a number of factors that will determine whether that behavioural change is likely to be sustainable or not. And one of those uh, in, in the work that we do is having somebody who can effectively be their coach, if you wanted to use an analogy of the guys that are in, in Rio, that's, that's helping nudge and guide and keep on track and course correct so that the confidence grows in that, actually, I, could, I can become better at this habit until it feels like it's just your new normal. But it does require trial, experimentation and a bit of discipline. Kate, why is this kind of thing not obvious to us? I mean, eat well and walk more. This stuff is drummed into us. Why did it take a professional to tell, presumably quite an intelligent insurance guy, that he needed to do those things? A couple of things probably relevant here. One is, you know, authority is always important in this. We, we know that people listen to outsiders more than they sometimes listen to themselves. Um, but it's also about whether or not your system's working for you. I think one of the things that was so effective about what you did with, with um, your, your colleague there was break things down into very small manageable chunks. And that's a, that's a tool of the behavioural science literature is, is take a very large thing like becoming a healthier person and break it down into manageable things, things that I can know and identify. Create heuristics, which is sort of like a shortcut. So I'm getting off the train every day at, at, um, at one stop earlier. That's easy for me to remember how to do and it's, so it's more likely that I'm going to do them. So one of the things that we also um, spend a lot of time thinking about is, is the system working with you? Because sometimes behaviour change is just notoriously too difficult. An example of this is some work we've been doing on implicit bias in organisations. So um, it's estimated that about $8 billion um, is spent annually um, across the US on unconscious bias training, the sort of way that organisations spend their time trying to minimise the risk of bias in how they make decisions, from how they hire to how they performance assess. Now, the problem with this is there's very little evidence that any of that um, training makes any difference. In fact, some evidence suggests it can actually do the reverse in the kind of moral licensing effect of I ran a, a mile this morning and now I'm eating a Mars bar because I feel sort of I've done one good thing, so I, I kind That's of revert me. to doing... Yeah, we're all like that. 
And unfortunately, in the world of, of, of bias, in, when we're talking about potential racism or sexism, that also triggers a whole bunch of things we don't want to believe about ourselves. Um, so we've been spending a lot of time with organisations thinking about, well, are the tools that you're using for making hiring decisions or making performance-based decisions working with you to minimise the risk of bias? Because if you're just relying on people being better, that's, that's going to be a pretty uphill battle. Um, so we've been working in the Behavioural Insights team with a bunch of organisations on a new web platform which we call Applied, which is trying to take the bias out of hiring decisions by using small tools. So what are the small things right now that our listeners can do to make their hiring decisions better? So one thing is, um, unfortunately, we know from 40-odd studies worldwide that um, whether or not you have a white-sounding name is a, is, is a predictor for whether or not you're going to get called back for an interview. So you can send exactly the same CV, change the name, change the gender of the name, you see another impact there. And most of us don't want to believe that that influences at all the way that we assess someone's capability to do a job. Name. I changed my Do first you? name. I, yeah, my, since I changed my first name in 99 or 8, because it was like a nickname which became my name, everything started. That's when I got my first job. Really? Yeah. So what did you change it from and to? My, my real name is Sarkib. So that, that was sort of, you know, became Zach. But then, you know, when I was a sale, when I was a broker, and then when I applied for uh, journalism jobs, et cetera, et cetera, um, totally changed with the, with the Zach uh, thing and just on the phone and everything else. So so much easier, just easier anyway yep. for both parties. So you wait, the first 10 minutes is not wasted on a, on a, on a you know, who, what, what, who, Sarkib, what, what? Yeah. So even it, it's, it, it's such a small difference, but it totally changes your, um, you know, the way people look at you and think about you. Absolutely. Some evidence suggests that um, people spend as little as six seconds looking at your CV when you send it in, six seconds. So the, the key thing is what are they actually looking at on your CV? And right at the top is your name, <laughs> where you live. In some countries, it's your marital status and a whole bunch of completely extraneous information. So one of the things that we do in Applied is we just remove anything that we don't think is at all predictive of whether or not you're good at the job, distracts people from making fair um, and objective decisions about you and instead concentrate their intention. So you should really have your name at the end. <laughs> you, could do, you could well do that. The right people thing, have so that, that with um, universities as well, don't they? There's always a fight debate as to whether you should put your university at the top or the bottom because whether you went to Oxford or Goldsmiths, which is where I went, really affects people's decisions. Absolutely. So, I mean, on, on, that, on that front, you're trying to think of also, I mean, as a, as a potential employee or uh, you're trying to think of what, how others will perceive you, uh, which people don't do enough anyway. Is that, is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, but, but the onus shouldn't be on the applicant, I think, here. I mean, I think this is one of our, our key findings, is that it shouldn't be up to a bunch of people looking for jobs. But it, is, yeah, but it always is. That's the whole point. I mean, I, as I said, I changed my name and everything changed. It, just, it was like day and night. We would like to believe, though, that your likelihood of getting a job was entirely based on your skill and aptitude. And, and I think most people would, would love to believe that the systems that they're applying into um, are as fair and meritocratic as, as they claim to be. Can you tell us about how the platform works? Sure. Um, so there's a, there's a couple of features to it. One is that it blinds information that we don't think is relevant or, or important. The other thing is it completely reshapes the way that you review um, candidates. So instead of taking a candidate's information top to bottom and, and looking at um, you know, Zach and all of the things that Zach studied and all of the jobs that Zach's worked in, which is what we typically do, we know that that suffers from the effect of, say I love something that I see at the beginning of page one, I'm likely to have this sort of halo effect over everything I see thereafter. Or, God forbid, I didn't like what I see at the beginning of page one and I kind of discount everything I read thereafter. So why not actually 
compare candidates across the same kinds of criteria at once. In fact, if you've taken off all the names and all the other extraneous information, all you're doing is saying, who's responded to this particular challenge that you've given them most effectively and rate that? And they just go one, one after another. It's kind of like the way that teachers increasingly grade school assignments, take question one, then take question two in another chunk. So it's this kind of chunking, breaking up very, very complex tasks into manageable chunks. The other piece that we've got in there is a sort of wisdom of crowds component. So we've run a bunch of experiments that find that if you leave the decision to just one person, there's a very high chance that you accidentally miss your best candidate. So we ran an experiment and found that there's a 50-50 chance that you chuck out your best candidate if there are two candidates that seem similarly alike. Um, just by leaving it to one person, but if you bring in multiple people's perspectives, you minimise that risk considerably. And the same, the old adage was, you know, you get multiple people to tell you how many jelly beans are in a jar and you get a much more accurate assessment of how many jelly beans there are than any single individual. The same thing holds, as it turns out, in recruitment. So we've got wisdom of crowds in there, we've got blinding information, we've got chunking up and changing the way that um, assess, um, assessments are done. And we've also changed up what people are looking at. So. We did a lot of an, um, analysis and found that actually the things that we concentrate our minds on when we do recruitment isn't at all predictive really of who's good on the role. So where you went to university doesn't ma matter actually that much to your productivity. What does matter is what skills you bring to bear and can you rise to the challenge of a particular work-related task. So that's what we focus people's sort of assessment processes on. Okay, well we're approaching the end of the show now so I have one question for both of you and that is what, what is your, being your biggest triumph in all of this? Keith, let's start with you. I'm going to go back to the guy that I spoke about who was uh, uh, our um, insurance uh, exec who um, got off the tuba stop earlier. Um, when I look back and reflect on his where he is now in terms of his career, he's gone from somebody who was one of those people that we always talk about who had great potential and never quite fulfilled it, and the world is full of unfulfilled potential. Um, to somebody who sustainably has uh, got much closer to being the best version of himself every day. And, and that, that, that makes a massive difference, not only for his performance of work and his employers are all very happy and that's all, all great, but in terms of his life outside of work as well, that's made a, a significant difference. So I think, it's, I think it's moments like that when you reflect back over a period of time. It's great to come off things like, like the games and, you know, members of, we have members of the team with sports site for GB women's hockey and, and so the best women's hockey team in the world and, and the best rowing team in the world. Um, but it's those, those moments where you can see the impact on individuals, on teams, and if we're really lucky, on, on organisations that have driven through and sustained behavioural change that's helping them perform better in their particular arena. That's the stuff that really makes a difference for us. And Kate? I think probably getting people comfortable with the idea of experimenting. It all sounds very scary and it sounds like the sort yeah. of thing that happens in labs, but actually it's something that everyone can do in their day-to-day -day work and just armed with a couple of small tools, you can do it in a really rigorous way that helps you to make much more evidence-based decisions and helps you to ultimately kind of achieve your ends much more efficiently and effectively. So you might say getting people to pay more tax, but... Thanks to Kate Glazebrook and Keith Hatter, this has been City AM Unregulated. Remember, you can listen to the podcast on cityam.com or download via iTunes or Audioboom to listen on the go. City AM Unregulated is an Audioboom production. Audio